You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jim Kassang and I, Niels Kastor-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Jim, great to be back with you this week. It's been a busy few weeks since we last spoke. How are you doing? Doing well. Great. Thanks. Uh, good to be back, as always. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, we have got, I would say, a pretty awesome lineup of topics, even if I have to say so myself, which I can say because you brought up most of the topics, um, and we'll be tackling them later. Um, but before we do that, I'm always curious, kind of from a really big picture point of view, uh, just some of the things that's been on your radar. Yeah, a lot of uh, interesting times, right? Um I think we started talking about six months ago or so uh, about the likely way this ends being a blow off top. So that's something that, um, you know, we've been waiting for some upside momentum to squeeze shorts uh, and uh, change sentiment. So I think that's a big thing that we're watching and thinking sure. about. You know, the the NASDAQ strength versus the Russell, which we've seen, has been remarkable. Um, it makes sense uh, to what we're seeing, but I think uh, that's an interesting thing that we should dive into. Uh, and, and related to that tied in is just broad dispersion, right? Yeah. Uh, dispersion is having record uh, performance. Uh, there's structural reasons for that. So I think diving into the why and how that works is is super interesting. And then just from a macroeconomic perspective, um, you know, diving into a bit of how resilient the economy has been, which again is something we've talked about for some time. This is a demand push economy and kind of diving into that. So there's there's a lot of different levels, but it's a very interesting time with the Fed kind of now being pushed back into the fray once again and uh, markets starting to do some, some interesting things. Yeah, you know, I always enjoy our global macro conversations. I'm sure we'll touch a little bit on that as well. Um, one thing that you and I don't think have ever talked about on the Global Macro Series, so, and something that I saw on a tweet that came to uh, my attention today, was that apparently the Hong Kong dollar seems to be struggling a little bit, keeping its peg. So some people, I think this was Kyle Bass, who were tweeting about it, and I know he's been having a go at the Hong Kong dollar peg for a while, but... But still, it is interesting times. So you have to take all of these small sort of indications and say, hmm, could this be the beginning of something yeah, much ne bigger? Yeah, never mind dollar-yen, right? We're seeing some real uh, you know, uh, dislocation between the relationship between that and markets broadly. And that might be a little canary in the coal mine as well. You never know. All right. Well, before we dive in, as usual, just maybe a quick update for people. I should say, first of all, that we are recording on the 30th of June. So the, mo the month is not completely over. We've still got a few hours. Things can change. But from a trend following point of view, it looks like it's been an okay month for most managers. Slightly up, nothing dramatic, but, you know, still uh, uh, looks like it's a positive month uh, overall. Looks like some of the old stories have come back. Um, fixed income, equities uh, doing well for different reasons. One, obviously, fixed income having a hard time in terms of price, so seeing uh, almost new lows in, in some of the maturities. And equities, of course, um, surprising uh, a lot of people at the moment uh, with the strong sentiment we see there. Then actually also from a um, diversified point of view, grains and, and some of the other commodities uh, have actually had a bit of a difficult time from a trend-following perspective where some reversals came this month. But anyways... As I said, looks like an okay month. My own trend barometer finished at 43 last uh, last night. So that is exactly neutral. Uh, so that probably sums up uh, the first six months of the year. Uh, looking at uh, the numbers, it looks like the first uh, six months of the year, uh, the beta 50 is going to be down about a percent um, for the first six months. Sokjin CTA index also down about a percent. The trend index down about 1.1%. And the short-term uh, traders index uh, struggling a bit more, down 3.75%. While we know, of course, that equities are doing really well uh, on all fronts. And uh, bonds this month in June is struggling a little bit. Now, Jem, it is always great to speak with you. But today, I think it is even better because it is this end of month, end of quarter, 
end of the first six months. So before we dive into your topics, I was going to ask you, how do you think investors are going to look back at the first six months? What do you what do you think? I'm not talking about necessarily your takeaways, but just sort of how do you think investors are going to feel about the first six months of this year? Uh, well, judging from uh, everything we're we're hearing, it's uh, you know everybody's ratcheting up uh, you know future expectations. Uh, we have everybody's talking about the new bull market. Um, we've had a complete about face in the last three months. Uh, never mind the last six months in sentiment and uh, positioning. It really is accelerating here, and uh, I think I think that's important. Uh, you know, markets are a reflexive machine. Uh, you can have negative, really negative macro flows and macro issues, um, and they almost always, you know, last markets generally hang in longer and go uh, counter to to what you might expect. Things can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent, right? And that's because of reflexivity, because of the simple fact that people are positioning uh, to to hedge against that, right? And ultimately, things end when that positioning itself gets squeezed out and the macro realities still remain. Um, so when you think about the last six months, we had a big overhang from a macro perspective, major issues that are well-documented, well-understood with bearish positioning. And at the end of the day, uh, what that leads to is a shaking of bearish positioning, um, and these things end with time and price. And again, we've talked about this on the show enough, but uh, you know whether it's uh, the real estate kind of bubble that we knew about in 06 that didn't bust, burst until 08, um, whether it's the, um, the tech bubble, which we knew about in 98, 99, which didn't burst till 2000, uh, whether it's the uh, as simple as a, a shorter term time frame as COVID, which we knew about in December, of 2021, but uh, didn't decline until February, right? Mid-February. These things uh, need to move in price and time in a way that shake shorts and conviction and reflexively um, undo themselves. Um, So that is what we have seen in the positioning. The positioning was uh, on all metrics, incredibly historically bearish um, at the beginning of this year. And that critical point is what has really uh, driven kind of these flows. Um, the macro picture and reality has actually continued to uh, get worse. Um, and uh, uh, the uh, when I say worse, just from a liquidity perspective, very just dollars and cents systematically has gotten worse. Um, this is not like uh, this is not like the the macro. I'm not talking about geopolitics really as much uh, or or other things. The simple liquidity situation is, is significantly worse and continuing to you know we're now transit 2.0, uh, right? Uh, the the Fed is now once again you know paused and is now continuing. Um, and just yesterday we got GDP ratcheted up from Q1 um, in a significant way. So all of those things are pointing to what we've been talking about for some time that the the macro slower moving liquidity picture is um, is is getting worse. But again, we are in the process of of changing the narrative. Sure. Well, we're certainly going to dive into that straight away. I just want to make one small comment, and I don't mean to correct you here, Jim, but I think people might be confused. I think when you were referring to 2022, that was the Ukraine thing, but 2020 was COVID. Correct. Um, correct. I meant to say yes. COVID. I so apologize. Just, yes, yeah. exactly. So, but actually, we knew almost. I would say about both because uh, in 2022, we knew that certainly inflation uh, was coming back from COVID. Uh, so, so True. there was they some clear all, it signs. It almost always applies. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, but yeah, I was really but, referring to COVID in 2020. I know, and time. I knew exactly yeah. where you were going with that. So it makes sense. Now, you already kind of um, gave a little bit of a teaser on some of the things we're going to initially talk about. I think you could say, we, let's start with kind of the US-focused um, side of, of, of the equation. Uh, you mentioned real GDP. Why don't you just start from your perspective and, and let's go through some of the things that you're paying attention to and sort of see how you feel it fits into what's going on in the markets. Uh, yeah, so it's it's all about time frames. I don't think I emphasize this enough, and I think in the back of people's head they they understand that. But but for the most part, people think if they're uh, bullish for the next 
three years that they should be buying. And if they're bearish for the next three years, they should be selling. And it's kind of a set it and forget it thought process. Unfortunately, that's not how these markets work, right? You can have, uh, you know, 30, 40% index moves, you know, up in the context of a, uh, or if not more, right, in the context of a very bearish kind of topping process. Um, you know, again, we've seen this during the tech bubble. We've seen this during the great financial crisis. Bigger numbers, right? Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but 99 to 2000, uh, I think the NASDAQ doubled in the last uh, three months or three to six months before it declined by 90 plus percent. Those are big numbers, right? Uh, you know, people uh, celebrate a 5% rally or a 10% rally. <laughs> Uh, you know, very, very. Uh, so you have to be, I often say, be like water, right? You have to be flexible and move and position also on the distribution, which we talk so much about, as opposed to just being long or short. So in terms of timeframes, though, you know, we've been on the longer time frame. just to kind of set it up, the longer time frame. you know, we've been talking about this for years now, I think, uh, and we've been proven very right, is, uh, you know, we've moved to a much more demand push economy. Um, the fiscal stimulus is an order of magnitude bigger than anything we've gotten in real terms. And uh, that continues to work its way through the system. That is not something that is complete. That is uh, a, a dramatic tailwind to demand. And uh, the fact that it's going to, to be clear to the, the lower part of the distribution is the key here uh, for, for keeping inflation uh, sticky um, and labor supportive. You know, that's not just uh, money going to those people, too. It's just broad populism and the labor rights and uh, whatnot that come with that. Um, that is creating a situation where every, all the cyclical, uh, the cyclical game that's been played for 30 years, uh, the two-dimensional game we've talked about, is really not uh, following the rules. Uh, everybody's like, why is this not working, right? The bond market keeps getting it wrong. Like, bond market's never wrong. What do you mean? Uh, and the bond market keeps being wrong because it's playing the cyclical game. And the reality is there's a secular underpinning structural issue that uh, is being ignored by many participants. And, and that is what has led to, again, what we saw yesterday, you know, again, GDP growth of 2% in real terms. This uh, U.S. economy is growing at 6.1% in nominal terms. Where's the recession, right? Uh, again, the recession is not here because we have a strong um, uh, you know, demand push that's coming from uh, money in people's pockets and better labor uh, position, more job security. There's 1.7 job openings for every person looking for a job. We're still at historic you know, low unemployment. So uh, guess what? Called it transitory again. And here we go again, uh, bringing them back into the fray. And this is exactly what we've talked about again before the first transitory. And again here, um, at some point, people will wake up and begin to realize what's actually happening here. Now, the, the, the confusing part for people is people automatically assume if the economy is strong, that must be good for the market. And that, again, if you're playing the cyclical game, makes sense. Historically, however, in inflationary periods, it does not work that way. Why does it not work that way? Because if you have sticky inflation and people begin to realize that, that perpetuates more inflation. And at the end of the day, that means there's an alternative to stocks. There's less liquidity coming into assets writ large. Um, you have margin compression on top of that. So GDP strength can be, can be very strong, but margins can start to collapse um, in the face of significantly less buybacks, less demand for assets broadly. And then again, now you have an alternative in five and a quarter percent uh, yields, uh, 6%, 7%, 10%. At what point, if you can get a 10% yield, is anybody going to put money in the stock market? Um, it is a um, it is a real thing. We talked about Tina, uh, you know, all day long, every day for for a decade or two, uh, and now uh, nobody seems to be talking about the alternative, which is an incredibly important part of the story. So we're facing incredible liquidity headwinds, despite what is a very strong and robust demand push economy. Enter the story of the late 60s through 70s. Same exact type of market. It becomes ultimately a stagflationary type 
circumstance during certain periods of that and is, is something that is very hard for policymakers to manage. Um, uh, and uh, this is almost, I would say, impossible at the end of the day because there's a populism, right, that they have to feed at the same time as trying to deal with this difficult um, price stability versus employment circumstance. Um, so kind of a, a deep dive on the longer uh, term picture. But again, that's the longer term picture. So that doesn't mean you sit here and you just start shorting everything and uh, trying to to buy the tail because the world is coming to an end. Uh, 1968 to 82, 14 years, the market went sideways in nominal terms and lost 67, almost 70% of its value. But you had massive rallies. You had 75, 80%, almost doubling markets. You had uh, three declines of 20 to 50%, um, uh, you know, three recessions in a, in a relatively short period of time and a lot of uh, geopolitical stress and, and major crises along the way. Um, the key was to be nimble and to trade it from both sides, right? And uh, to not be focused on beta, which is the key, because beta would have led you to, uh, at the end of the day, 0% returns with a lot of volatility and losing 70% in real terms, which is the more important piece. So again, stuff we've talked about, but you need to be dynamic, and that's where flows and liquidity come into the story and where positioning is so critical. Um, so um, so with that framework, right, we, we kind of move forward you know, understanding that that uh, you know there's a secular trend, but that doesn't mean we're not going to get dramatic moves in bonds, bond yields, and in uh, stock uh, market returns in the interim. Interestingly, you know, now we go to kind of liquidity. You know what what is driving liquidity now? Like as I mentioned, record short positioning uh, earlier this year, right? Which has had to be uh, unwound. Um, there are supportive things that lead to. Uh, that kind of happening. And that is that is one of the things that I sit at the center of, which is vol supply, right? So when you start to get to a point in a down market where vol is very, very, very well supplied, like we saw last year, at some point a decline reaches a, enough of a level where it's hard for it to continue. And if vol is compressed and you start, it's hard to get a sideways type uh, action in that with short positioning on the market writ large. Um, why? Because there's structural things that every day that go by, which I talk about, which buy back stock structurally. Some of that is just fundamental in terms of just earnings uh, and other, uh, you know, buybacks, other things that have a natural uh, positive push, uh, you know, interest itself, uh, you know, markets uh, increase by, you know, five and a quarter percent a year. Fed funds is at five and a quarter. It's just how it works. Um, so there are just positive flows from a fundamental perspective, but there are also underlying risk, uh, Vana and Charm, uh, you know, buyback that happens every day, which is, I think, a much bigger thing that people realize, uh, you know, puts the downside uh, risk every day that that doesn't happen. That is a a, uh, a buyback that happens underneath the surface. And so we've seen that happening. That's kind of what started the process and eventually forces sentiment to a much more balanced level. Uh, but generally, that uh, accelerates at the end because people hold on to their shorts. They're under positioning. I say shorts; it's not just shorts; it's relative to their benchmarks, right? Um, and and uh, at some point, they are forced. They're they're literally forced to buy back in or go out of business. Um, and that is, um, you know, it is fear, right? At the end, and that's the part that people don't talk about. People associate fear. Uh, with the downside, um, there is a real existential risk to survival for those in the market who do not track their benchmarks, and that is generally a benchmark that is face you know, pointing upwards, um, and and that fear is what accelerates these things towards the end. Uh, it's a uh, it's what leads to a quick pivot by banks and other entities, right? That uh, have been overly you know, relative in the short term, relative uh, to to where 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 the market is doing where they should be, and it forces a a squeeze at the end um, that generally tends to happen as vol starts to hit its nadir, and uh, you know you start to see what we've talked about a lot market up vol up so vol ends up becoming a much it ends up bottoming, and generally coming in with much more buying to the upside. Um, that ultimately has the pro not only has the uh, function of pulling uh, 
vol supply, which is what has kind of started this whole initial process, right? And it has a, a, the, the function of unwinding it over time here and pushing people into a much customers into a much more long vol circumstance and dealers into a shorter vol positioning. But it also ends up creating more and more in the squeeze, as you might imagine, the more simple idea, potential energy, right? We're lifting something further and further off the ground, um, you know, creating realized potential energy um, as, as well as importantly, the part I most uh, first talked about, which was it's, it now has fixed narrative and positioning and squeezed out short. So this is how the game works. This is how the whole system works. And, you know, you begin to ask yourself, well, where are we on that, on that uh, timeline? You read my mind. Yeah. And, and, and the question is, you know, the answer is, well, not, not early innings, right? We, we just talked about all the early innings. Those have passed. You know, and uh, so the key is, you know, that last part is, by definition, this is difficult, right? Uh, like you can't get a vol event if it's easy. It just doesn't work that way. That means people are not prepared are prepared for it. Uh, so, yeah, the answer is, where are we? You know, in my view, you're at the point of the game where you, the, the tail is getting fatter um, and uh, you continue to swing uh, in shorter time frames um, for kind of the fat pitch but you have to and look at very short-term indicators these are not uh these are not quarterly indicators these are not you know even necessarily monthly they are windows where they're uh and and times or narrative and p positioning uh really enter a very uh, dangerous period and and so we're really looking at high frequency meaning like daily weekly uh, up to monthly kind of uh, uh data in the context of what is a declining picture um, on longer, you know, middle and longer time frames, and I think a great example is, you know, we were very, very vocal there at June Opex. You know, um, you know, uh, this is a, you know, June Opex was a huge uh, uh, skew positioned, structured product positioned uh, cycle. It's a quarterly cycle. It's been around for a while. Led to not surprising, and we were talking about this, you know, big flows pushing it up into Opex, um, as we've talked about many times here. Uh, those quarterly OPEX are very, very powerful. And guess what? Right as you're doing it, positioning put call, you know, positioning starts to squeeze. All the call uh, speculation starts to gain kind of fervor. Everybody starts, uh, you know, on, uh, whether it's you know, AAII, you know, polls or, you know, just looking at Twitter sentiment indicators, everything starts going parabolic in terms of sentiment and positioning. And so that's a spot to take a swing given the macro perspectives. Take a swing, get a hundred point down. Vol doesn't react. The thing doesn't doesn't you know you don't get what you need to see because again vol hasn't hasn't gone far enough and positioning hasn't gone far enough and that's what that that tells you. Um, and so you take your winners and you kind of wait. You know you start playing for the the next leg of the the you know blow off top. Um, and again these blow off tops you know it can be is it is it going to be twenty percent or is it going to be forty percent? I you know who knows we'll see. Um, uh, again, I've, I've been doing this for 24 years and I was early for, uh, 2000. I was early for, I don't know who wasn't right. Uh, early for 2008. Um, you know, uh, but I made a lot of money on all those. And, and the reality is you just got to be prepared and ready and understand how these things work. And, uh, this is a good time to own upside calls longer dated, as I've said it before, to play what is likely more market up vol up. Um, you know, in this type of a market environment, and you can short uh, stock against it uh, in the windows and play accordingly. And you can fund that in other ways, right? In other parts of the distribution, which we believe are overvalued. But there is an incredible opportunity here. Uh, again, the best trade in 99 uh, for a, over a year, uh, you know, was, uh, was to be long, long dated calls and short stock. You made money on the way up and you made money on the way down. And you did that and then eventually captured the big decline that came. And, and that is, uh, again, uh, that's, that's coming from a lot of old, uh, old fogey experience of mine. But, you know, you started to see something very, very similar in 07 into 08. Um, and uh, across the board, that is the one part of the distribution now. Uh, again, reason to be macro bearish. Um, but in, before that happens, you tend to get a blow off top. And, and that's how these things in the short term are likely to unwind i'm going to venture into some questions that i'm not necessarily sure that i fully understand but i'm trying to catch up and and uh always trying to 
stay close to the headlines as I enter into conversations with you. But I'm trying to, so let me see if I fully sort of get what, what it is you're saying and maybe um, we'll, we'll kind of touch on this in a, in a slightly different way. So in a sense, you're expecting markets to have this blow up uh, sort of move and, and you know, whether it lasts six months or three months, who, who knows? Um, and that makes sense. I mean, I think we've, as you talked, you've mentioned this, uh, it, this is what we typically see. When I hear other people talk about volatility at the moment, there is kind of a disconnect compared to how things normally move. I mean, we've had S&P up close to 6% this month. We've had VIX down only three points. At least it's going down, but, you know, you're talking about uh, market up, uh, vol, vol up, and, 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 and vice versa, perhaps even. And at the same time, I'm seeing these papers coming out saying, you know, with a flat term structure at the moment, it's really, really hard to be long volatility at the moment. And so it sounds to me that if, and I'm sure you will be proven right, but it almost sounds to me that when this happens, uh, investors might be really badly prepared for it because what tends to happen is that if it is so expensive to try and stay long vol, and, and we've seen long vol managers go out of business in the last 12 months, uh, even though markets took a turn to the to the downside last year where you thought, yeah, that's definitely going to make long vol managers some money, but it didn't. Now we're in a situation where you're saying, I think this could turn out to be, um, you know, the last hooray um, before something major to the downside. And it also sounds to me that you're saying, and actually there may be very few people being really prepared well for it when it comes because of a lot of these factors. Yeah, to be clear, the two are intrinsically connected, right? They have to be poorly prepared for it for it to happen, you know? And that's kind of the point. It's Let's dive into vol real quick. I, I think this is important. This is to answer your question. This is going to answer your question. You know, what? what's happened in the last year in the from the vol perspective? Um, you know, vol came down. People were very well hedged uh, on, on the index level. Um, uh, you know, broad market level uh, for the initial decline. We've covered this in depth. Vol didn't work. All the institutional hedgers got destroyed on that move. Uh, so if they were 110% long because they didn't want to sell all their performing kind of tech and, you know, and they were hedged uh, with, you know, 30 delta puts, call it, or, or something along those lines, which would notionally take them out of their downside, you know, those those puts kind of continued to expire, not perform, and and yet their their beta got destroyed. So they didn't pro- perform as they would have hoped and expected. We've seen this throughout history. We've covered this. We won't go into all of it again, but there's many other cycles where this has happened. When people are hedged, the vol doesn't perform. That led to an exodus from 30-day vol and any implied vol products. And anybody who was shortfall, you know, got inflows, right? And so vol uh, beyond like zero DTE, right, has gotten absolutely, there's, there's been an exodus of hedging and an increase, a dramatic increase as selling vol. I can't tell you the number of conversations I have a day with, man, I've made 30% plus a year just selling, you know, these puts and and, and these calls and we're selling puts and selling stock. And, you know, um, uh, so, and people are just doing that now because it, it's worked. And that's just how dealer positioning works. People, something There's a trend to something, it works, everybody crowds in, and then it blows up, and then everybody gets out, and then it works for a while, right? I mean, sorry to interrupt you here, Jim, but this is exactly what XIV was doing, right? Correct, I mean, correct. Yeah. yeah, and this is this is exactly, and we're actually, this is going to dovetail exactly into that because we're going to get into dispersion, which is exactly kind of, we had the highest, you know, we're at that record dispersion levels now. At this very moment, it's like highest dispersion profits ever, and uh, guess what? The last time we had that was 2017. And that's not a surprise because that's just the way the, the market, the system works. But let's dive into why that is and what's happening. So so that 30-day vol exodus happened. And then what was working, and actually it's funny, when I was at the Equity Derivatives Conference speaking, there was another panel before me that I was listening to. And it was all institutional kind of uh, structured product uh, shops and, and banks issuing structured products. And uh, they were talking about how they're hedging their risk. And to a person, they all said, well, we're not really buying puts anymore. That didn't really work. I don't believe in its ability to work. Um, 
which I'm guessing they wouldn't have said in March of 2020. But instead, what we've started to do is actually actively tra- hedge with zero DTE options. I am not kidding you. These are these are big structural players, um, you know, hedging. And the concept is not incorrect, right? The, what was working was that realized volatility was actually working quite well, um, that, but implied vol did not perform. And so there was just, uh, you know, this is not just uh, mom and pop YOLOing zero DTE options. There's a demand and desire to not be exposed to implied volatility insurance premia and simply to hedge your realized day-to-day risk uh, means a much more active approach, um, et cetera. But that's what happened early on. There was a you know significant move to speculation, both from speculators, but also hedging into realized volatility products like zero DTE. And guess what? As soon as they started doing that, that stopped working. Um, so now what have they done? Well, you know, maybe we'll just hedge less because you know what? The coast seems to be clear. So that's led to massive now selling and zero DTE. And there was a significant turn, call it six to nine months ago. And it's only accelerated. Now it's just massive sellers and zero DTE. And now you have sellers in both. So we're moving along a spectrum, right, of people abandoning hedges and not just abandoning hedges, but short vol sellers moving from what was kind of a big fat pitch and, you know, not, you know, in this implied vol that was high and skew that was high to now to, to skew and vol that's lower to now uh, zero DTE as well. And so, again, this is what dealer positioning is all about on the vol level. Now there's the, the, the being long or short the market and delta, but there's also being long and short vol. And so not only does... Uh, is it important in terms of price, in terms of getting a blow off top to, to squeeze things? But it's also important because of time, because of the decay and the cost of holding hedges over time. So if things, if we don't get a blow off top, right, the other way this ends is with time. Time itself unwinds, it leads to, to over, uh, to too much vol, uh, you know, sh- uh, shorts that can lead to a convex outcome. And that that's, 17, 18. That's a couple of other examples. But so that's why this is a function. I always say this of time and price, the way this unwinds. It is not just uh, shorts in the market being squeezed and potential energy and everything I talked about with the bluff top, but it's also the building of vol shorts and un- under hedge positioning relative to benchmarks, right? Um, that can lead to the undoing itself of markets. And and they both matter. So price and time are your kind of your indicators, your risk indicators for how how this is going. And as it currently stands, all that vol selling first leads to, and this this will go back to 17, first leads to pinning. So the first move, it's not like the the more short vol there is to dealers, it doesn't initially lead to a blow up. What it initially leads to is a pinning, which leads to a momentum factor, which leads to more and more vol compression, which eventually gets to such an over uh, unbalanced positioning that customers themselves eventually have a blow up. Now, very hard. It's again like a blow off top, right? But in, in inverse, you're getting a a blow off top in, in vol, essentially. You're getting a over positioning uh, into into short vol that can eventually, um, that initially pins, you know, so again, much like uh, call speculation initially leads to gamma effects, but eventually leads to the unwinding um, on the downside. So, you know, again, where are we on that? You know, let's let's see, all right, you gotta play dynamically and look, zero, but zero DT vol selling has dramatically increased. Uh, structured product issuance sits at the core of this. That's not many many people are talking about that. The underperformance of markets or the risky kind of macro outlook all all combined uh, with higher interest rates means a boon for structured products. That means you can uh, you can get five and a quarter percent under the hood, and then pair that with um, kind of higher vol levels to structure. You know, really what look like nice little investment opportunities relative to maybe the risk reward you're seeing in the stock market. So guess what? That leads to vol compression. So those inflows lead to pinning and and vol compression. And this was another thing talked about at EQD is like the amount of issuance they're seeing for all of these structured products is through the roof, having record years. But that all then flows to banks, which then need to hedge it, right? And then now dealers are also 
long. So it's not just in the options markets. I want to be clear. These are structured products, which are probably even a bigger part of, of the market. So we're at a point in the process where the, the vol markets are at the center of, of the action that we're seeing and very critical to understand uh, and uh, in terms of what the outcomes we're seeing are. Importantly, uh, it's also what sits at the at the core of um, the lack of breadth broadly we've seen and, and the dislocations we've seen. Um, macro flows are negative, as we've talked about, which lead real and just in real terms to less buybacks. Uh, you have uh, real estate uh, kind of slowing down, right? You have le- less other, uh, you know, types of uh, of things that, you know, bank liquidity issues, uh, as we've seen, but all kinds of things that ultimately drive, um, you know, le- poor liquidity for stocks, uh, particularly uh, stocks have to refinance debt, et cetera. Um, so you've seen uh, pressures across the majority of the market, like negative pressures, but with vol pinned, you know, and vol itself is the center. The S and P is the center. If the S and P is pinned, we've talked about this. What that drives is other stocks have to go in another direction. And generally, in order to make up for the majority of stocks, it has to be a bigger stock. And generally, the most likely outcomes for um, that breadth to break down are not just big names, but they happen to be vol centers. And if there's a vol center that is now short vol. Right where where the customers are buying vol as opposed to the index level which is pinned, guess where the weakest spot is? Right where where is that that point of that balloon that has the least like latex? Right, that's the thing that's going out pop out right to relieve the pressure of everything going the other direction. And what is that? That's Nvidia. That's AI. That's tech. Um, that's where all the YOLO call speculation is. That's where the short vol is for dealers. And so if the index is pinned and the broad, uh, you know, average stock is kind of uh, having negative liquidities, negative liquidity, the by arbitrage constraints, something has to go the other way. And it tends to be the short vol kind of tech AI center. And that is exploding because of that, because the amount of pressure coming from the whole rest of the market, right, with the index pinned is so much going into one or two or three or seven stocks um, that it is uh, that it leads to dramatic Historic, which is what we're seeing, changes in rotation and breadth, um, and that's what we're seeing right now. So that is so critical for people to understand. Everybody thinks about stocks first, and index is a a, a, a culmination of those stocks, whereas the reality is both are critically important. Macro flows broadly affect single stocks from an economic and uh, a real kind of again with buybacks and other other rights real uh, flows. Uh, dynamic, but uh, the index itself is more driven by derivatives and things that are tied to that index, structured products. And so the interplay between these two is critical to understanding what is happening and how this stuff ends. That's what led to record dispersion in 2017, to answer your question. It was, uh, we had historic selling of vol at the index level. And that historic selling of vol at the index level meant that Guess what? You know, within one, you know, we had to stay within two standard deviations, some level of uh, of idiosyncratic flows to single names. Those, those particularly ones that weren't vol centers, and those would still react to you know uh, a beaten earnings or uh, a, a you know a, the, the death of a CEO or whatever it was, right? And uh, as those things moved, that meant something had to move in the opposite direction, given that the vol was pinned. And so that led to, by 30%, the lowest realized and implied volatility in 130 years of history, completely out of a sample kind of outcome. Um, and, uh, you know, that correlation, that, that correlation, that lower implied vol, which is out of a historic uh, precedent, also was paired. Again, this is how we know this is how it would happen with the lowest correlation by 25 percent in 125 years of history and so um, now we're seeing those levels again and uh and again it's because the market now has the s p 500 and the derivatives and the structured products and everything which um, themselves have an incredible effect um, and i would argue are as strong if not more important than the single stocks themselves so so you describe a situation where you um as far as i understand uh, you make a lot of, um, say, well, there's a lot of similarities to what uh, you and I and, and a few people listening today uh, will remember from the tech bubble. 
and more people will remember from the great financial crisis. Um, I have two questions. Do you think that the zero-day options, which we didn't have back then, are potentially making this an even worse setup that this could get... I mean, it's hard to think of something that gets uglier than an 87% down NASDAQ, right? But okay, <laughs> it can be uglier in many ways, right? So, but is this a more dangerous situation? And and if it is, I'm not, I don't know what your answer will be, but if it is, who should be the grown-up in the room saying, well, hang on, it's not a good idea that we have, we, get, we are kind of giving people not just a loaded gun, but we're giving them like a machine gun because of these instruments that they're really not equipped for. Yeah. So uh, first, you know, straightforward answer, uh, the financialization and the amount of leverage and uh, access that we give as this market gets bigger and bigger does create, whether it's zero DTE or or something else, um, dramatic changes to market dynamics and the more leverage there is, uh, you know, on the tails, yes, uh, it creates worse outcomes. 87 itself was a function of insurance, right? They well documented, um, which is not that different than what we're talking about in some ways, right? These, uh, the, again, we can talk about that Feb to March, 2020, uh, that 30% decline, which was fairly historic itself, which is more his- recent was a hundred percent tied. And, and even though COVID was the cause, Right, 100% tied and related to the tinderbox that is these derivatives market. So, so the answer is yes. It's another kind of brick in the wall. Um, I don't want to make it out to be uh, like this is dramatic sea change. Um, it is derivatives are, they have embedded leverage that most entities don't fully appreciate and that even risk metrics across the market don't properly control. And now that we have more and more participants entering that space, which I believe, again, is a, is a secular reality because they're superior tools. Um, we've, I've talked about this, right? But but the rules governing them and the education knowledge um, is such that, that it does create reflexively more dangerous outcomes um, when positioning comes gets to extremes. That's magnified when you go to parts of, of the distribution that are hard to hedge, that sit on the edge. Um, and what do I mean by that? So something that's zero DTE, by definition, is the most gamma that you can possibly have, right? It is, um, it, it changed, prices of those things uh, change the, the quickest and can have the, the most extreme uh, outcomes on a one-day basis. But, you know, in some ways it expires at the end of the day and then it's gone, right? Whereas long-term capital management, for example, you know, uh, things could go to whatever price because you know it was a long way out, and so um, you know there are there are good and bad things about these. They can exacerbate gamma effects on the, in the short term on a one day basis, um, but in some ways you could argue that they are slightly less dangerous in the sense that after that day move, it's over. And I'm guessing after that move, you're not going to have everybody selling the zero TTE right because um, it'll all be blown out. But but the but yes, it, what it does is it increases the probability that if we get a one-day move of, I don't know, 7%, it's going to be 20 or something crazy, right? I would agree with that. Um, so it, all of these derivatives are structurally, you know, vol, accelerating, increase the tail. We've seen this again and again, uh, and I can, again, we can point through whether it's 87 or, or 2020, um, all of the interplay between these. And I do think it changes the market structure and the set of potential outcomes, which is what my positioning is important, understanding that and understanding the net effects of it. But I think it's, 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 uh, you got to be a little bit more kind of specific than just, Hey, is the introduction of this going to blow up the system? Um, because yes, all of these products and anything getting too unbalanced, um, it ultimately does lead. And broadly, I would argue the vol market getting bigger broadly is a bigger issue, uh, writ large than just whether it's the zero DTE. Uh, and actually to that end, I'll, I'll highlight the structured product thing I had mentioned earlier. Um, you know, uh, structured products can themselves, uh, become much bigger and, and a huge, bigger, a huge part of this market. And I likely will, going forward uh, as interest rates go higher 
And I think that ultimately might represent a bigger issue long run, but I don't know that we're there yet. Does it make any difference? I noticed that, for example, things like margin debt right now actually is not at its highest. It's, I think, sitting around $650 billion. I think the highs is closer to a trillion, about $900 billion. So in that sense, you could say people haven't gone out you know, full in or full out or whatever you would say. I, Does that help? I've not? looked at that. I don't necessarily believe that because part of that for the reason for that is margin debt's more expensive, right? When you can borrow money at, at 3% versus 7%, um, people are just going to take more. Um, uh, on top of that, uh, I think, you know, there's there's money going in other places or other alternatives. Um, so I, I don't know that margin debt's going to get to where it, it was uh, by the end of this. But, I mean, uh, it's something to keep an eye on for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. And by the way, who needs breath? I mean, the Nasdaq is having its best first half, I think, ever, up more than 30%. I mean, who? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, this is um, obviously, if you were long this year, you've done incredibly well. Um, and that's the point. Uh, it's, it's, I don't want people to hear from these conversations like, be bearish. I think the big takeaway, people hear the macro, and that's what people gravitate towards and say, okay, I need to get out of stocks. Well, you know what? You need to be dynamic. The problem is I think uh, the general average market participant uh, doesn't rebalance frequently and doesn't want to pay attention to markets. So they want to know on uh, you know on a on a one year time frame or two year time frame what our market's going to do. And the reality is, you know, we may be uh, between uh, now and, and a year, we may be up twenty percent and then down forty fifty percent. And uh, you know uh, that type of reality means a different type of positioning. Uh, which is, again, long call, short stock type positioning, maybe with some extra call, right, um, or under hedged. Those types of positionings are are actually the right trade over that interval. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're just looking to be long stock or short stock, that's going to be something that's, uh, you know, again, hard to hard to manage for the average investor. Yeah, and I think, you know, I mean, people hear what we're talking about, but they may not always be listening. And it's a little bit the same with the Fed. I mean, you and I even have talked to people who definitely we would consider being, you know, super bright in 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 this field, and they've argued, oh yeah, but inflation is coming down, and therefore you should own bonds. And they've been absolutely right. Inflation has come down, but they have lost money holding bonds, right? And again, this ties into that cyclical versus secular, right? You have to really understand timeframes and play timeframes and position across the distribution appropriately. Um, if you, you know, that is one way to kind of more set in, forget it, just be, a, you know, uh, invested to the parts of the distribution that are, are going to work uh, throughout the cycle. But the other way is just to be very active and understanding of those cycles. And, and as the positioning changes, uh, you know, uh, adjust your cyclical positioning in the context of a secular set of outcomes. Um, it's again, it's, it's, I wish it was as easy as should I be long or should I be short? It's just, uh, you know, what time frame, what moneyness, what outcomes, what markets, um, you know, let's be specific. Now, summer holidays coming up for many people. You talked about, I think, in your notes that there will be, I think, some support maybe for a few more weeks. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, that? Yeah, absolutely. So part of the reason that, you know, even, you know, we got, we were very vocal about uh, taking a shot from the short side at June OPEX. And, you know, that was a, a you know, quick two and a half percent. Um, but it was a short window. Vol didn't respond, but it wasn't just Vol not responding. That's, that's important. It's knowing going into that, that we had um, a big up month um, in the market. Uh, we had uh, a long you know, weekend here in the U.S. that's very important, actually more. It sounds silly, but it's actually a big deal. Uh, you have a you know, July 4th holiday on a Tuesday with um, half day on Monday for markets where nobody's showing up to you know trade. So you have a four-day weekend, which is a long, long weekend. Uh, you know that's uh, you know two-day holiday essentially is is ten uh, percent of a, the whole month of trading, um, and uh, 
and then you have a, a situation where, like, where, as I mentioned, Vol didn't respond. Vol was very compressed. Um, and then you get into that important part that I've talked so much about, that kind of that week before the week of expiration, uh, generally that leads to significant increases in Vana and Charm kind of buyback, um, which are flows uh, that, that you generally want to steer, you know, trade, buy into. Um, so you start piecing together, you know, uh, on July 20, the Monday after you took this kind of, uh, you know, this week and change long um, shot, and you start to see kind of the, what the next three weeks holds. This was as of uh, yesterday, two days ago, and, and two days ago, 28th. And and the answer was, well, the answer is to go, you know, long and to, to go with the flows. And, and to be clear, that's, you know, that's in the context of of what could be, uh, again, a very cheap vol to the upside. So there are ways to play this that aren't just long stock um, or futures. Um, so, uh to talk to the the end of month, beginning of month piece, right? Uh, when you're up six percent, uh, uh, you know the the U.S. equity market's about forty trillion dollars. Uh, you know, six percent of that is two point four trillion dollars of increased asset value uh, for anybody who's invested in the equity market. Uh, that means a dramatic increase in collateral and reinvestment into the uh, the next month. In the context of, again, people lose track of this, but the average amount of incremental flows that push markets is 50 to $100 billion a day, um, you know, $2.4 trillion uh, in a couple of days. I mean, again, to be clear, that's not all going to work the next month. That's not, you know, we don't want to overstate it, but just, you know, cut it in half, cut it, you know, in a quarter. It's still a dramatic set of inflows. So people know that's coming. Systematic investors get out in front of that. Um, there are some other counterbalancing flows like risk parity and other things that go the other way, um, uh, you know, that mute it. But the reality is that's that's very positive in a very short time window. And then add to that that the beginning, as soon as you start the, the first day of the month, which is when that's actually coming in, is uh, on the other side of, a, you know, essentially a long a long weekend, which is then supplemented with Vana and Charm, uh, you know, acceleration um, and, uh, you know, a structured product uh, hedging acceleration. And then uh, then you're in like a very positive week and change again. Um, and it's never a straight line, but, you know, it's liquidity and flows and there's a point where you kind of wait. And so now now imagine with kind of this the squeeze that we've started to see already and the need that people have the speculation on the call side with the leverage that that exists right in some of these tech names and the people who need to get back on sides and are underweight now um you can see what we're seeing today all right and this is what we talked about actually a couple days ago publicly and, and here it is right so uh this is what leads to blow off tops um and over acceleration you know people pushing the flows and getting over you know if, if I, I could imagine if we get to uh 4,600 in the S&P um, within three weeks. Um, that would start to feel more interesting next time to take a shot. So these are the way these things in short time frames play out. But uh, I think you can look again, time frames into the context of a much longer, bigger picture and what we've been waiting for um, and, uh, and see where the opportunities lie. Again, that doesn't mean you short it, <laughs> flat short it. People will get hurt um, if they do that blindly. But looking at higher frequency data and information like I'm talking about and then playing these bigger picture things is how you really win in these types of environments. Now, it's so wonderful to have someone like you who knows all of these numbers. And so I'm going to take the opportunity to get ahead of the mainstream media who will basically come out, that's my forecast, at some point. Uh, as stocks move higher, they'll probably come out and say, oh yeah, CTAs and trend followers are pushing the market higher. And I just want to remind people that those were the headlines two or three months ago when equity markets were slowly moving higher. And yes, probably around that time, CTAs were getting some long signals and buying a little bit of this. But it's always worth remembering that as these blowout market moves happen, it has nothing to do with CTAs or trend followers, whether it's financial markets or, or as we saw earlier this year, the articles about how we were pushing or had pushed uh, agricultural markets up last year uh, after the uh, Russian invasion. 
we are not the ones with the flows once the trends are so well underway. It is other types of flows, as you so elegantly uh, described here. And nevertheless, these are massive forces. It's just nothing to do with our or the industry I represent. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say nothing, but I would just uh, add a, uh, you guys are just a piece of the pie. You guys are, uh, and not an uh, overwhelming majority. You're not causing it for sure. But I do think, I think your flows are important as well. Yeah, well, I just want to push back a little bit on when I hear that because what people don't realize, and that is as you see the parabolic move, right, most of people in our industry today, they use dynamic position sizing. So as you get the parabolic move, we're going to be selling. We're not going to be buying. And so this is what people sometimes, I think, don't realize that often we're on the other side of the move because of the expansion of volatility. So, of course, there will be some systematic funds. I'm not talking about the shorter-term guys or whatever, but I'm just saying the longer-term trend followers who are often on the front page of Bloomberg and other people saying, uh, you know, describing us as being the one pushing prices towards the end of, of a big move. And I just want to say that that's really not what's happening. But Yeah, no, I I, I was simply, I, I, I tend to agree with that. I think the... Um, it's important though you guys are part of our equations, right? Uh, yeah, definitely part of the bigger story. But I, I, I do agree that it's not, it's not like the higher the market goes, the more you guys buy. Um, but uh, but there is uh, there's significant you know uh, trend flows that happen into an a uptrending set of markets. That's almost by definition, uh, you know. How, how it works. Um, yeah, and, and and you could say, well, as long as volatility is actually compressing, you could say that there will be a little bit of adjustment potentially uh, where we will be supporting the market. That's a fair point. But yeah, course. making so, you guys out to the, the core force is, is, is again, not... <laughs> I wish we were that clever, but we're not. <laughs> but there we are. There we are. Uh, Jim, this has been uh, a wonderful world tour of volatility. Uh, once again, we only have a few more hours left of the of the trading day, uh, month, quarter, half year. There's a long weekend coming. Anything you want to sort of leave the audience with as we um, as as you guys head into your Fourth uh, of July celebrations? Um, honestly, uh, you know, think about timeframes. Stay. You know, understand the bigger picture, but uh, understand that usually these things don't stop from a, a standing place. They, they kind of jump and then fall, right? Um, and uh, like I said, time itself and the building of short interest in the vol markets will ultimately also play a role. So uh, make volatility great again, I guess I will say at the, at the end of this. <laughs> Um, yes, I have. A, I actually have a cap yeah, saying same. that. Um, yeah, we'll have so. to we'll have to do a video version and wear them. Where uh, we wear know. them. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, no. Uh, July fourth to set forth. No holidays for two months. It's the longest stretch, uh, and there's a reason that uh, generally uh, seasonality is weaker. Um, seasonality is not just a concept broadly. It's not a, just a trend. It, uh, those things exist for many structural reasons, as I've mentioned, and. Um, Best off heating them in the windows when appropriate, um, given given what we're seeing. Absolutely. Uh, well said. And it'll be very interesting uh, when you're back uh, next in, in a month and a half or so to hear whether we've uh, whether we had the blow-off top or whether we still have some ways to go. And uh, it certainly sounds like um, Q4 of this year could be an interesting one as well. Now, if you enjoy these conversations, I hope... Uh, which I hope we, you do, um, then I would suggest that maybe helping us out a little bit by going to your favorite podcast platform and leave a rating and review. Share these episodes with your friends. As you can tell from listening to Jim today, these are important times and it is very worthwhile um, having a portfolio that is somewhat prepared uh, for what could be uh, both, you know, uh, an interesting time to the upside, but certainly also a time to be uh, well protected maybe uh, later in the year. Next week, I'll be joined by Rich. So we will have uh, lots of fun tackling some questions and uh, probably some deep dive into uh, more the trend following side of things. If you have any questions, send them to info at toptradersonplug.com. From Jem and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. Happy 4th of July. And until then, 
Take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.